Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. Today we're looking at science advice in the UK, which was the title of a major new report published in September by the Foundation for Science and Technology and Transforming Evidence. With me to discuss that report and what it tells us about the state of science advice in the UK at the moment are the authors of the report. Anna Hopkins, Senior Researcher at Transforming Evidence, Dr Sarah Foxon, Knowledge and Exchange Lead at the Parliamentary Office of Science and Technology in the UK Parliament, and Dr Catherine Oliver, Associate Professor of Sociology and Public Health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And just for full disclosure, the final author of that report was myself, Gavin Costigan, Chief Executive of the Foundation for Science and Technology. Now, all of my guests are speaking in a personal capacity today, not on behalf of their organisations. So welcome to you all. Now, let me start with you, Anna. One of the key features of the UK system is a specific individual role, that of the Government Chief Scientific Advisor that's currently filled by Sir Patrick Vallance. What does the report say about that role, how it works and the potential strengths and weaknesses of having such a centralised figure? Yeah, so the report says that that role is really, really central to how science advice functions in the UK. And it is a complex role with many different formal and informal aspects. So the government chief scientific advisor has primary responsibility for leading the government office for science, for aiming to embed science advice within government in various different ways, uh, and also coordinating the scientific advisors that sit within various government departments. So the, the report covers some background to the role, which I think is important for understanding how it looks today, which is that although um, various science advice roles have existed since, I think, 1855, after the Second World War, there was uh, some consensus that there should be separation between politics and science advice as far as possible. And the role today aims to reflect that separation in that the government chief scientific advisor is independent, enters science advice from um, academia. But what we learned through the report was that the skill set of the science, the government chief scientific advisor is quite complex and involves both academic uh, and policy skills. So we learned some really interesting things from interviews about what's needed for that role, including really importantly, uh, interpersonal and communication skills, strong academic networks uh, and reputation, uh, as well as a strong understanding of how policy works. And I think that that interesting and complex skill set really points to both the strengths and weaknesses of the role. Firstly, that the reputation and the influence of the, the government chief scientific advisor is really central. And secondly, that the role is really a very interpersonal one. So it's a lot about the ability to, to build and sustain trusting relationships and I think it's that sort of that dual aspect of the role which points to some of its strengths and weaknesses. So on the one hand, the government chief scientific advisor is able to provide a focal point and a decisiveness within the UK system. And on the other, there's a heavy reliance on, on personal networks and the possibility that science advice processes are less open to diversity than they would be uh, in some of the kind of more committee-oriented systems that exist in EU countries. Interesting. That certainly sets the, the UK apart from, as you say, some other countries. In your remarks, you mentioned how the, the government chief scientific advisor sort of does some coordination of the science advisors across different 
government departments. And obviously, each government department also needs its own science advice. So what are the key features of science advice in government departments in the UK? Yeah, so that's a question with quite a complicated answer, really, because I think one of the the key things about science advice in government departments is that it's quite an uneven picture. I think it's uneven in both the sense that different departments have uh, a different amount of resource and capability for research and for science advice, and also uneven in the sense that government departments have tried very different and often very innovative things in order to pull research evidence and advice into their work. Many government departments have quite long histories of collaboration with universities and the form that this collaboration takes is also dependent on the policy area that the department is working in. So for example, the Department of Health and Social Care has really close relationships with the National Institute for Health Research, which it funds, uh, and a strong program of research partnerships called the Policy Research Units. In other departments, such as DEFRA, which we have a case study of in the report, there's been a a long and interesting process driven from inside the department to upskill and expand the team working with evidence within the department. Another really crucial feature of the UK system is the existence of CSAs, so Chief Scientific Advisors, within all government departments. Um, And this network of CSAs across departments is a really key coordinating function that links all departments to the government chief scientific advisor and to the government office for science. Um, And that was highlighted to us in the interviews uh, and, and conversations that we did when writing the report, that that's a real strength of the UK, that ability to coordinate and to embed science through that network. So turning to you, Catherine, the support to the government chief scientific advisor and coordination across government departments is carried out by the Government Office for Science or Go Science. And I know you had a secondment to Go Science in 2020. How does Go Science go about this coordination across departments? Well, the first thing I'd like to say is that I was there as a, an external fellow, so as a research fellow coming in to look at a particular part of their activity. So what I'm going to say is very much from that perspective and not from the perspective of someone who's done a systematic evaluation or anything like that. But Go Science is um, obviously the office of the government chief scientific advisor who's has many jobs. One of his jobs is to be, for example, the head of the government science and engineering profession so that's everybody who has a scientific or engineering background in government and to support them but the other one of the other many roles that the GCSA has is to try and support science advice and science and engineering advice use across different departments in government so they don't have a mandate to tell people what to do so they don't they're not it's not like the cabinet office or some more executive role that they have they play their role through coordination through holding forums through supporting conversations through supporting skills development capacity and capability their role is is kind of soft power between departments and one for example really good example of the way that Patrick Balance as the current GCSA has sought to do that is by really supporting what the chief scientific advisor network previously they were often very isolated it very much depended on the departmental culture as to how their role evolved and what sort of support and access they had to policymakers within department what patrick has managed to do is to bring them together as a group 
every week to talk about current challenges, opportunities to work together, shared priorities, capacity and capability training. And that has been an enormously successful initiative to try and raise the profile of the CSA to work together and to uh, coordinate across government. One of the current priorities for Patrick is what's called the Science Capability Review. So when he first started his tenure as GCSA, as GCSA, they looked at where scientists were based across government in all the different departments, everything from the Treasury all the way through to the Met Office. Um, and what they're trying to do now is to build systematically ways to improve that capability and capacity across government. So they're using that process of examination and evaluation to try and work together a little bit more effectively. And one of the other things that Go Science has been driving across government departments is the areas of research interest or the ARIs. What are these and, and how can they help? So my role within Go Science is to support more effective academic engagement with the areas of research interest. What they are, are statements of knowledge priority or research priority by government departments. They were originally suggested by the Nurse Review, which I think was 2015, as part of an attempt to improve the way that research is done and used in the UK. Paul Nurse, who led this review, suggested that it would very much help researchers and academics if policymakers could say what they wanted to know to give an indication of which were their key topics, their key questions. So over the years between sort of 2017 to 2020, most government departments published some ARIs. And when we first took up our fellowships, the NetVers and I of these fellows, at the beginning, at the end of 2019, there were about 800 areas of research interest which mostly sat in PDFs on the Cabinet Office website, and then you had to be sort of downloaded in, um, individually. They were really, really different, very hard to sort of compare across departments. So, for example, the Foreign Office had 10 bullet points, one of which was how will the relationship between UK and Europe change after Brexit? It's quite, I think, quite a big question, something we'd all, all like to know. Whereas the DEFRA and the HSE, which have way way more scientists in-house um, and a much more what you might think is a much more developed science system internally had much more detailed research questions which looked at like proper research questions with methods and um, so on it really varies between departments and what they now are trying to do uh, what we what Annette and I were in post to do was over the two years that we are going to be attached to go science to try and test test out a number of approaches to improve academic engagement, so to help something useful be done with the areas of research interest rather than just sit on a PDF somewhere. So is what's required, for example, a roundtable conversation with some experts? Would an ARI be best answered by having a commissioned piece of research? Would it need a whole stream of funding from UKRI, a new challenge-led stream of funding, for example? There's lots of different approaches which they could be which could be used, but it's not clear to anybody yet exactly how that might work. So that's what we've been thinking about. So it's very much watch this space and see how things develop. I wanted to ask you about something else. The report that we that was written also looks at SAGE, the uh, science Advisory Group for Emergencies, uh, and that's a body that's much better known in the general public now because of COVID than it was uh, two years ago. How has SAGE developed and changed during the COVID pandemic? Well, it's changed absolutely enormously. So my first day at Go Science was the beginning of December 2019, so we had about two months there of 
getting to know the different teams before COVID really kicked off. I've just restarted this month after a break from maternity leave. And I think Go Science's staff in total has something like tripled. So ordinarily, SAGE is staffed by six relatively junior members of staff, each of whom has a particular topic area. And their job is to keep on top of the expert networks and the expert advice around that particular topic area. So an example might be volcanoes or power outages. One person was tasked with looking after epidemics. So that's SAGE's normal running structure is to be very responsive. Uh, The emergencies that they deal with tend to be very short Um, in terms of time. They tend to be quite focused. And usually they would meet once, possibly twice, to develop some advice on how government should respond. COVID obviously has been a completely different experience where they needed to meet, well, policy decisions need to be made over a number of months and years rather than over days and weeks. So it had to evolve both in the sort of structure and in the the sorts of people who they were talking to. So I think very quickly, about a third of Go Science was seconded into supporting the work of SAGE. As Just as an example, I think normally if SAGE met, it would have around 30 people, experts on it. Uh, it would be chaired by Patrick or whichever was the relevant CSA. And then the secretariat within Go Science would then take a few weeks to finalise the papers and put them online for, for publication. And that would happen over a couple of months following the um, emergency so that all the advice is transparent. And they did take the same approach with COVID, but because they were meeting two or three times a week, every week for several months, they had to draft in many, many more members of staff to support that publication process. And I think they've now published hundreds of meeting minutes and associated papers. So it's been an enormous amount of resource that's gone into it. And they're continually recruiting, I think, across the rest of the civil service to support that. So it's grown, but they've also developed new subgroups to support, for example, behavioural science input into policy response and to the rather the science advice to, that would support the policy response. And I think the scrutiny that they've uh, been under both internally and externally is continuing to support reflection on how that's working. Sarah, let me come to you. There's a chapter in the report about science advice to Parliament. Parliamentarians also have a need for scientific advice, but don't, of course, have the benefit of the civil service to support them. How does Parliament get its scientific advice? Well, there are a number of different mechanisms, really. So within Parliament, scientific information and expertise is sourced and used by a number of different offices to help Parliament carry out its functions. To start with, Parliament has its own in-house source of scientific advice, which is the Parliamentary Office of Science and Technology, or POST for short. POST is over 30 years old, um, and within Parliament, it has the role of bridging research and policy. POST produces impartial, non-partisan and peer-reviewed briefings, which are designed to make scientific research, which includes social sciences research, accessible to UK Parliament. It also conducts horizon scanning, supports select committees and holds events to bring the parliamentary and research communities together and to support collaboration and dialogue between the two. POST is also home to the Knowledge Exchange Unit, which is the team which supports and strengthens the exchange of information and expertise between the research community and all parts of parliament. 
Now, an important aspect of POST ways of working is its collaboration with fellows. So POST runs two academic fellowship programmes, one for doctoral students and one for established academics. Both schemes are designed to enable and increase Parliament's access to and use of science and evidence, and also to build capacity and understanding in the academic community around policy engagement. Beyond POST, there are a number of different mechanisms which support the flow of scientific information and advice into Parliament. So select committees are small cross-party groups of MPs or members of the House of Lords that perform a scrutiny role, scrutinising government. And they do this predominantly through conducting inquiries for which they put out a public call inviting experts to share their insights. And this is a key way that information, so including scientific information, can flow into Parliament. Both the House of Commons and Lords also have libraries, which provide an impartial research and information service for parliamentarians and their staff, and they too draw on and make available scientific information where relevant. So those are the formal mechanisms that we have in Parliament. Beyond those, there are also the all-party parliamentary groups, which are special interest groups, and they tend to be around a subject or a country, um, and they meet together to, to talk about and engage with the topic. And they may also engage with or seek scientific information or advice. And then finally, of course, individual members uh, of Parliament of both houses and their offices may seek out or engage with scientific evidence or advice. And looking at all of those different mechanisms, Parliament is going to have the same issues as government does in terms of not just relying on what we might call the usual suspects. How is Parliament seeking to expand the network of experts that it engages with? Absolutely. Usual suspects is definitely something that we have seen in Parliament, but absolutely something that Parliament is working to address. And there is a lot going on across Parliament to expand and diversify the body of experts that Parliament engages with. So, as I said before, the role of the Knowledge Exchange Unit, which is the small team that I lead, is to strengthen, support and diversify the flow of information and expertise between the two communities. So we do various activities to support that. um, And I'll give you a few examples. So we run training for researchers and have a suite of on-demand webinars to help demystify parliamentary engagement for anyone who's interested and to give them the tools and knowledge to feed into Parliament. So helping them understand what Parliament does, what its role is, and where the channels are for them to be able to feed their research in. We also have a web hub of resources to support researchers and knowledge mobilizers, so how-to guides, explainers, information. We promote opportunities for engagement widely and openly through Twitter, and now through a new weekly email roundup, which anyone can subscribe to. So anyone can access those opportunities that we find to engage with Parliament, be that specialist advisor roles, be that to feed into a select committee, to conduct a fellowship. And listeners can find out more about that and subscribe by looking at our web pages. So the URL there is parliament.uk forward slash research hyphen impact. And then more broadly, we work really closely with a growing network of over 500 knowledge mobilizers or intermediaries, knowledge brokers, however you want to term them, across UK universities, uh, research institutes, learner societies, professional associations, to make sure that we're seeking input from from diverse bodies and from diverse diverse voices. We work very closely with others such as UPenn, the University's Policy Engagement Network, and we're supporting colleagues across the House who are also taking forward their own activities and initiatives to diversify engagement. Thanks for that, Sarah. I want to turn back now to 
Anna, because all of what we've discussed so far is on the demand side of the science advice system. And the report also looks at the supply side of that evidence and expertise. So Anna, what's the role of UK funding bodies in all of this? So UK funding bodies have a really central role in how science advice works. There are seven research councils in the UK through which public money is allocated to academic research, and they are coordinated by an overarching body that was established in 2018 called UK Research and Innovation, or UKRI. Um, And its aim really is to create improved synergy uh, and coordination across the seven research councils uh, with Research England and also with Innovate UK, which is the UK's public innovation agency. So both UKRI itself and also the seven research research councils individually have in various ways aimed to improve engagement with policy. This activity has really increased over the past decade or so and has become increasingly diverse, definitely within the last five years. So there have been several major investments to support uh, evidence centres and networks that produce and disseminate evidence for policies, such as the What Works centres. Several research councils have also aimed to support researchers to develop the skills for policy, policy engagement. So, and then another really important part of this is funding. So, Gavin, why don't you tell us a bit about that? Sure. So, the Research Excellence Framework has been around for many years as a way of looking at the quality of research. Uh, And this then is used to allocate money as part of the dual support system through the QR, the quality related funding stream. Up until 2014, that funding had been primarily looking at the quality of research. But in 2014, 20% of the funding was dedicated not to the quality of research, but to the quality of the impact of the research. And in the 2021 exercise, that percentage increased to 25%. And obviously, impact stretches well beyond just policy impact. But for the first time, there is a significant amount of money going towards the university sector, where the university sector has to demonstrate that it's gaining policy impact. And there's now funding to enable them to do that. And on top of the REF, Many of the research councils have introduced specific funds, which are listed in the report, dedicated to increasing impact, including policy impact. And some of the most important ones are the Impact Acceleration Account and something called HIFE, the Higher Education Innovation Fund. In the report, you can see how those funds then lead to activities within universities. So, Catherine, I want to move on to you now. So how do the funding incentives that I was just talking about and the work that UKRI that Anna was just talking about lead into changes in what universities are actually doing? So universities have responded quite creatively and vigorously to the incentives on offer. Some universities have had quite a long standing interest in public policy impact. So, for example, um, policy at Manchester or the Policy Institute at King's have both been going for several years and have, a, for example, a series of policy conversations or roundtables, which they've held over the last decade or so um, on particular policy challenges for their, for their area or of interest to their university. That's now become adopted more widely. So I think that 80 universities now have something comparable, a policy institute or a policy forum or something of that kind. 
So one, one side effect of having this proliferation of institutes, for example, is increased competition between universities for limited policymaker attention. And I know that you've done a lot of thinking about this, Gavin. And one of the really interesting developments in this space that you set up was University Policy Engagement Network, which is now known as UPenn. So this is a partnership collaboration type model where rather than 80 universities all trying to get in touch with a particular policy officer at the MOJ, rather there'll be opportunities to discuss, maybe divide up areas, specialise in particular types of research-based conversation or particular initiatives to share resources and to hopefully make the whole process of academic policy engagement run a bit more smoothly. So that's that's one really interesting response universities have, have undertaken. I think more broadly, initiatives like the Research Excellence Framework um, alongside this funding have really encouraged universities to start being a bit more creative about how they think about supporting individual academics. So we're seeing more training courses around how to have your impact, often for PhD students or early career researchers alongside more sort of substantial investment in in-house support around grant making and particularly around impact writing and impact creation. But most of these initiatives aren't really evaluated. We don't know very much about how these initiatives work or what impact they have, either on research or on policymaking. So it would be, it would be interesting to find out a little bit more about how the different models work and what sort of effects they need to. Sarah, coming back to you, the report concludes with a few cross-cutting issues. Can you give us a brief introduction to what those issues are? Yeah, absolutely. So we drew attention to a number of cross-cutting issues in the report, which we tend to see growing up across the science policy landscape. Well, and indeed, really across the whole research development and innovation landscape more broadly. So really across the ecosystem. The first of these is equality, diversity and inclusion and how we can improve this at the interface of research and policy. It is something we're seeing is given increasing attention to both in research and policy and indeed rightly so. Another issue is that of disciplinary diversity and integration. So obviously policy problems generally cut across research disciplines, yet institutional structures and ways of working in both policy and research don't always make it easy to seek or provide a variety of disciplinary perspectives or indeed integrated evidence. So something that's something that we raised in the report, we, we identified. Something else which has come to the fore in particular over the past couple of years is the matter of transparency and science advice and really transparency in its totality. So, you know, the who, the where, the when, the what, the why and the how of science advice that need to, to demonstrate and to show transparently what's going on. Another issue we see cutting across a research policy landscape is data and its role in science advice. So yes, data provides us with lots and lots of opportunities. However, it does bring with it a number of challenges. So for example, around the quality and quantity of data, which is sought, gathered, used, and of course, around privacy and security. And another key issue with data is the need to have those skilled individuals who are able to collect, manipulate, and interpret the data. So that really leads to the last cross-cutting challenge, which we identified which is really the importance of building the skills in the policy sphere to be able to access, interpret and integrate science advice. And indeed the skills in science advisors to be able to produce and communicate science advice uh, as well. And then finally, uh, looking more broadly at the ecosystem, also developing the skills in academics to be able to communicate their research evidence to a policy audience. 
So ensuring those skill sets are there goes hand in hand with continuing to develop systems and structures in both policy and research and at the intersection to support the embedding of science and evidence into policy and scrutiny. Thanks for that. That's all we've got time for. And a big thank you to my guests, Anna Hopkins, Dr. Sarah Foxon and Dr. Catherine Oliver. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. Speaking to me this week were Anna Hopkins, Senior Researcher at Transforming Evidence, Dr. Sarah Foxon, Knowledge Exchange Lead at the Parliamentary Office for Science and Technology in the UK Parliament, and Dr. Catherine Oliver, Associate Professor of Sociology and Public Health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, with a special guest appearance by Baby Clem. The report, Science Advice in the UK, is available on the Foundation for Science and Technology's website at www.foundation.org.uk. Also on the website are details of all our events, all our blogs, and all previous editions of this podcast. Next week, we'll be discussing next steps for the UK after the COP26 Climate Summit, and my guest will be Baroness Young from the House of Lords. Until then, goodbye.